How's everybody doing tonight? <laughs> the eighth psalm puts us right in our place. Psalm 23 calls us sheep. Psalm 8 says, God made us a little lower than God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you take thought of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David's song identifying what we are, what God did when he made man on the sixth day. What, we, what are we? Well, we're compared to God, we're nothing. But by God's design, no, we bear his image and we've been designated as, as the highest of his earthly creation to have dominion over what he made. That's the ultimate destiny of man. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, ruling over all of planet Earth for the first thousand years, we call it the millennium, and then on into the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and uh, have some, uh, some truth with God. If we confess our sins, the truth is we commit personal sins. And if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. The reason it's okay for him to forgive us our sins is that Jesus Christ paid for those sins on the cross. And we're not talking about the initial forgiveness that everyone receives when they first believe in Christ. We're talking about believers in a relationship with God where we've stepped out of fellowship with him and uh, we have forsaken our birthright of having fellowship or abiding in Christ. And what we do uh, through personal sin and breaking that fellowship is undone. We are reestablished uh, in a, a, a condition that's, that's really sanctified, that is clean, that is cleansed. That's what's being offered in 1 John 1, 9. I always give a moment for silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed because you haven't counted our iniquities against us, but you stored them all up, all the sins of the human race, and you poured them out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And now our ground is, is him. We're, we're satisfactory to you because you're propitious with your son and what he did on our behalf. And we praise you for that standing that can never be taken away from us. Need wonderful is the matchless grace of Jesus. And we ask that you'd strengthen us now, Father. Again, we don't deserve your grace, that you would show yourself to us and communicate what you want from us, but you do grace us out. And so we ask for that in this hour in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Jesus came and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, is the way the New American Standard translates that passage, and you've seen my, um, my translation probably many times as we've walked through this. Uh, this is our 10th visit on uh, the mission. We're calling this study on mission, where we're trying to identify what Jesus wants from us in this age. What's his plan for our lives? It's a generic, universally applicable statement like Matthew 28, 19, and 20. But it, as we, we've observed, it has a specific way you do it. The way you participate in the mission is as individual as you yourself are an individual. And, uh, and that's, that's unity and diversity. We have one mission with all the millions of pieces of the mission. And the question is, are you on mission? What's your piece? Are you uh, taking up your cross and following the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you being a good disciple of his? And so um, if you think about the way we've, we've designed the study, we're going to all the last statements of Jesus before uh, his ascension as presented in the Gospels and Acts. The last words of Jesus to his disciples. 
And uh, the core, uh, the most explicit place where the mission is communicated is Matthew 28, our kind of central passage. And that's the last thing in Matthew Jesus says, and that's the last words of Matthew, um, the gospel. But what about his first words to his disciples? How did he start training them? How did he make disciples? What is his instruction to them? And you might know, Matthew is organized. He organizes material around five discourses, around five long-form speeches, the way Matthew presents them, that Jesus gave in his ministry. Matthew is not chronological. It isn't intended to be chronological, but it is a presentation of the life of Christ concluding with his death and resurrection. But the way Matthew organizes material is around these discourses, the first one being the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We say the platform of the king. Jesus in Matthew is offering the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven to Israel, a literal fulfillment of the Davidic covenant with Jesus ruling on David's throne in Zion over all the nations. Psalm 2 being fulfilled Literally, he's offering that to Israel, and they rejected it. They rejected it. In Matthew 12, they accused Jesus of casting out demons in the power of Satan, and then Jesus began to preach judgment upon the nation that he had offered the kingdom to, that he was offering it to, with repent for the kingdom is at hand. He began with parables in Matthew 13, and also began training his disciples for what next, what is going to happen in light of the kingdom rejection, which the ultimate climax of that rejection is the cross, where the, uh, it, the nation uses the Roman Empire and political machinations to put Jesus on the cross. And so uh, when we go back to Matthew chapter 10, if you turn to, in your Bible to Matthew 10, this is the account, the way Matthew has organized the material, the account of the calling of the 12 disciples and the initial instructions Jesus gave them for their initial mission. And, uh, and I wanted to see how did Jesus make disciples? What, is, what are his instructions? And what you do when you look at um, Matthew chapter 10 in light of our current responsibilities, you find what I'm calling nine core discipleship principles in Matthew 10, nine core principles of discipleship. And um, now I want to be careful as we get started because I believe Matthew 10 is a, is a model for making disciples. It's a model for getting these principles. But I would challenge you to watch the Bible closely because the mission Jesus sends them on is not the mission that he sent us on. No, it's not on the screen above. No, that's not good. I have to start my whole talk over. Isn't that pretty? Isn't that pretty flock? My favorite part about the sheepfold there is the dog off to the right. Is that dog working for himself? No. Who's he working for? The shepherd slash owner. But is he he doing his job? You could say that dog's on mission. Now, that's one of my favorite animals of all. I believe that's a border collie. And if it's not, he looks like one. He's he's an imposter. He's the right color, doing the right job to be a border collie. Border collies, it's been demonstrated scientifically, can do calculus. They can't do differential equations, but just differential, uh, just, uh, just uh, derivative. I'm just kidding. They can't do calculus. <laughs> but they are considered the most intelligent breed of dog by the people that do dog IQ. And you're like, those people have way too much time on their hands. But um, anyway, I, I love the, 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 the picture of a border collie watching the flock because that's how I think of pastors. We're not the sheep owner, but we would die for you. And we are serving a, a master who is your owner because he bought you with his blood. And so um, the best you could say about pastors is pretty much sheepdog. But, um, but it, let's don't push that too far because I am just like, the, just like David. I will say the Lord is my shepherd and that makes me a sheep too. And I'm thrilled to call the Lord my shepherd. Well, as we look at what Jesus teaches his disciples, uh, how Jesus teaches his disciples to, sh- to shepherd um, Israel with a message of the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, I'm going to propose as we pull these out nine principles of discipleship that I think apply today that you can see in this first mission that Jesus sent his disciples on. Now, w- w- wait a second. Are you telling me that something happens in Matthew that doesn't apply to us today? Absolutely absolutely it couldn't possibly apply to you today you're not israel we are not national israel with the king showing up to say hey nation of israel 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of Jacob, living in the land that God has promised them, that specific piece of property forever, that that is going to be theirs and that this is the kingdom that he promised long ago is being offered now. That's not happening today. You're not Israel. You're not supposed to see yourself as a replacement for Israel. And this is the core issue. When someone says they're not a dispensationalist, this is the issue. It is the sense in which we relate as the body of Christ, the church, to the people of God, Israel. And I don't know how you do other than say we've replaced Israel if you're not going to say you're a dispensationalist. That's really the issue. It's the one issue that the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are forever promises. Here's what people do. They say, well, you know, Jesus came and his kingdom is not of this world. So that means that we misunderstood that Jesus isn't really going to rule on David's throne over Israel, over the nations, like it says all through the Old Testament prophets. Look it up in Isaiah 2. Wait, we're not really going to see Jesus physically, personally, politically rule in a kingdom over humans. I mean, you're pushing the details of Scripture. No, I'm just submitting to the details of Scripture. The promises of the Old Testament are not canceled by the coming of the church. The calendar in Daniel chapter 9 is not canceled by the fact that, uh, that, that um, Israel was destroyed in 70 AD. It was prophesied to be destroyed, and we still are expecting, based on Daniel chapter 9, seven more years for Israel. It's counted out to you in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. It's called the tribulation. Now, that's the, that's the most important issue in figuring out if you understand dispensations. It's not how many ages you count. It's not whether you like Schofield system or Darby system or any of these things. It's what do you do about Israel? If you think you're Israel, then you are not a dispensationalist. If you think that you're distinct as the church of one body from Jew and Gentile in one, that's a new creation called the church that started at Pentecost, you may not know it, but you're holding a dispensational distinctive that really defines the entire system. Now, why am I talking about this? Because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says something completely opposite of what he says in Matthew 28. 28, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations. What does he do in Matthew 10? Do not go to the Gentiles. Do not go to Samaria. This message is only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the kingdom offer of Jesus Christ. And once we understand that, that that's what's happening in the story, and we submit to that portion of Scripture, I think you can then apply what you need from the passage to the discipleship moment because he does it in the passage. He does it in this passage. Matthew, remember, wrote 30-something years into this age before the destruction of the temple, but after. um, I think Matthew probably wrote about 10 years after Um, after Galatians was being circulated. Just to give you an example, just to give you a flavor. There are still prophets going from church to church that are speaking directly the word of God like Isaiah would do. There are still people that are healing with the gift of healing to demonstrate, to authenticate the message of the gospel. There are still people speaking with foreign languages. They're speaking languages that they don't know, that are actual human languages, never ever gibberish. But they're speaking foreign languages that they don't know like on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where others who do speak that language are hearing God be glorified and praised in the name of Jesus Christ in their own language that the person speaking it doesn't know that language. These things are still going on when Matthew is writing. Matthew is prophetically writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that's why we have it in Scripture. So we need to recognize that the Bible has to be interpreted in the time in which it was written. It's vital that we do that. So when you go uh, for application of the gospel, it's one of the hardest things in the world to do, and Matthew uh, is probably the toughest uh, itself on that. So I'm proposing a model for making disciples from how Jesus did it with his disciples for a different mission. It's related, but it's different. Let's just do the differences. It's different target audience. It's not Israel. Uh, Our mission is not Israel. It's all the nations. Beginning with Jews, Jewish Christians were the first to be told to go to all the nations. The mission is different from ours because it's a different message um, because of God's kingdom program. We are not saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. We're not. Who said that? Who's the first to say that on earth? John the B. John the Baptist said, repent for the, isn't that the gospel that we're offering? 
Jesus is not physically on earth revealed as the king offering the kingdom to Israel. That's what it means that the kingdom is in your hands. It's at at hand. It's in your grasp. It's right here. I believe that you need the kingdom present, the king, sorry, present to have the kingdom. I'm I'm really um, passionate about this, that we're not in an already not yet phase of the kingdom. That's do not mess with Isaiah. Don't mess with Deuteronomy. Don't mess with God's promises to Israel. Well, but don't we have the kingdom in our hearts? No, because you just keep having to deal with this piece of real estate that God said is between the two rivers. You can't do that with God's promise when he says it's specified. It's this boundary of land that belongs to God's people. And Zion is where Jesus rules. And just, just casually read Isaiah 2 sometime. Just read Isaiah 4. Just kind of let your eyes pass through this thing and see if you don't, first of all, have to say, well, I can't believe any of this if we're in the kingdom now. But I do believe it. I believe in Genesis 1 through 11 too, by the way. I believe in the miracles of Scripture. I think that God created the first two humans just like he says. And I think that if he didn't, then we have no idea what this thing with sin and the fall is, is really all about. Well, I don't want to chase any more rabbits. I'm just trying to show you that you're not going around preaching repent for the kingdoms in your grasp to the nation of Israel with a baptism of repentance. I'll prove one other thing. When the disciples of John the Baptist in the book of Acts, when they, when they meet um, uh, Paul, they say, we didn't know whether there's a Holy Spirit. We were baptized in the baptism of John. What does Paul do? What, what, what happens in that case? They're baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. They, are, they receive Christian baptism because what John is doing in the Jordan River is different. It's the kingdom offered to Israel, and the repentance that goes with the kingdom is what he's calling the nation to. Now, this is why people try to jam Matthew into Romans, and they fail. Because what's going on in Matthew is not exactly the same thing that's going on in Romans. And yet, it's for our instruction, and you better, you better be, believe that you're called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's learn about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have different power and authority Jesus gives the disciples. Let's read it in verses um, 5, beginning in verse 5. The, the 12, you have the introduction of the 12 by name uh, in verses uh, uh, 2 through 4. Oh, and verse 1 is your summary. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. There's your summary statement for this mission. See, that's a different power. It's a different mission. He didn't say, go and make all the disciples of all the nations by casting out demons and healing people from diseases and raising the dead. He said that to these people for this instance, for this mission, because while Jesus is on earth offering the kingdom, he does the works of the kingdom. He, he heals the blind who have been blind from birth. He cleanses lepers, and no one's ever done that since Moses. I mean, no one has ever cleansed leprosy since Moses. Jesus does it all the time. Well, a couple of times at key moments as presented in Matthew. Uh, this This is the works of the kingdom. Hey, God is in the flesh here with you. That's what he's doing as he presents the son of man himself to the nation and they reject him, say he's doing his works in the power of the evil one. In verse five of chapter 10, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist's summary message from Matthew 3, 2. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast off demons, freely you received, freely give. Now, let's just learn something about application here. I do not believe that we are exercising demons in this age. I don't think we're called to do it. I don't find a place to do it. A Roman Catholic church will tell you they've got a, a primer on it. Now, if, you're, if, you think, if you believe in that, fine. I'm talking about the Bible. In the Bible, there is no place that says you and I are now equipped to go cast out demons. We're told in Jude not to revile angelic majesties. We're given the example of Michael and Moses' body and fighting Satan for Moses' body. Michael says, uh, the, the archangel of God says, I, I rebuke, the Lord rebuke you. See, he's not willing to revile Satan personally. So don't ever, don't ever tease or 
taunt God's enemy. He's real. His demons are really there. You can't see them. That's his grace. That's God's grace to you. But um, this mission that he sent them on is kingdom work. In the thousand-year rule of Christ, says it in Revelation chapter 20, six times, 1,000 years. What is the distinctive marker of that age besides Jesus ruling over the nations from Zion, from his holy hill in Zion in Jerusalem? What's the distinctive marker of that age? You remember in Revelation 20? Satan is bound. See, the kingdom work is Satan is bound. When the kingdom, when, 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 and, and then at the end, what happens? Have you read Revelation 20? He's loosed at the end of 1,000 years. And then what happens? He deceives the nations again, and they have another revolt against God. It's the trib part two almost. It's the, another battle against God that the deceived nations are able to be, to be hoodwinked by Satan again, and then the great white throne judgment, and then the lake of fire. And then there will be no question, even in a perfect environment, an Isaiah 2, no animals fighting each other, environment, no more malaria, no more mosquitoes, no more white-faced paper moths stinging you. None of these things that, that bother us today are going to be bothering the human race in a perfect environment set up by Jesus Christ in this coming kingdom described in Isaiah. And yet, at the end, Satan can still deceive the nations. Satan is still able, the thing still ends in failure with God intervening to bring about success. And here's the summary of all of human history. Only God can make success. Only God can do it. We fail. The best human beings can do is be deceived by Satan and the, on our own. And the only hope we have is to fix our eyes completely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, a little, a little uh, bi- summary Bible prophecy and eschatology to understand what Jesus is talking about, a very eschatological thing he's doing, sending them to cast out demons and raise the dead and heal lepers and so forth. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and uh, freely you receive, freely give. So I think there's a difference between what's going on in Matthew 10 and what we're dealing with. But it's related to what we're doing. It's related. And don't ever, don't ever say, well, we can't read Matthew because it's Jesus offering the kingdom to Israel and um, that's not going on today. That's like uh, very foolish because Matthew's written to you, the, the church. It's for your benefit. In fact, I believe, as I've told you before, I think it's a Jewish Christian readership that has heard the message of John and Paul. They've heard this summary message of the Lord Jesus as your Savior who died for your sins. They've been justified by grace through faith. And that not of themselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. They've, they've received this grace gospel message and now they are to be baptized and now to be made into disciples by keeping all that Jesus commanded. And so this is, what, this is the kind of approach he had. That's why when you read through here, some of these things seem to go on through the, throughout the church age just as we read through. So it's a delegation from Jesus, just like he told the disciples uh, to go make disciples and we're part of that. And so it's this, Jesus is the Lord of that. So here, he's delegating to them as the one who's the source of the authority. Jesus is our king. He is our king, and the kingdom is still coming. The king is not present on earth. I do not believe we are in the kingdom now. I don't think it's right to say already, not yet. That was popular in the 60s and 70s to say already, not yet. And uh, I believe Dallas Seminary is pretty much in that place now where they're saying the kingdom is kind of in us, and then it's going to be physical, and it's both. And I don't think you can do that. I think the kingdom is an actual kingdom. And it, that's how Matthew uses it. So uh, it's still coming. It's still imminent. It's still future. And it's going to actually take place. But I don't think you're in it now. And that will that'll do a, a number on, on your, the way you present Christ, won't it? You'll be like, well, I can't talk about winning people to his kingdom. Well, it kind of. Now think about this. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is with our king. And uh, we are going to rule with Christ and his kingdom. That's our destiny. That's what we're being groomed to do. So as you make converts, as you share Christ with people, you're populating the administration of the coming kingdom. But we're not experiencing that kingdom now. And I would make that distinction since it's been so muddied through church history. 
And Jesus still works through the disciples. So in verses 9 and 10, I'm saying that uh, one, of the, one of the things that you can observe is, uh, is provision. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your money or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And the principle, you can see that, is that I am giving you instructions for what to bring you disciples on this kingdom mission. I'm sending you with this, with this instruction because you are going to receive your provision from the work. I think there's a principle of support or provision in this statement. Now, he'll say otherwise elsewhere. Later, he'll say, no, take two coats. And, uh, and so the point, though, is that as they go out in this mission, they're being equipped and they're being told that their provision is settled by him. And that's Matthew 6. Who's in charge of your provision? Who provides for you? Our good shepherd. And that's transdispensational. That is always going to be true. In verses 11 through 15, uh, I think this is a very helpful principle for how we approach the gospel ministry today. Wherever, whatever city or village you enter, inquire who's worthy in it. Stay in that house until you leave. As you enter the house, give your blessing or your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace, or literally give it your peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your peace, and that is a, a, a blessing. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city that rejects these disciples on this mission. Now what's a principle you can observe here? There's wisdom in how you approach. And, and here's the truth. Not everybody is open to the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be wise about how you do this. And so a lot of our interaction is seeing if we have somebody that is even open to the discussion. Do we even have a person, I call it a man of goodwill right? Elsewhere in the Gospels, the man of goodwill. This person doesn't know Jesus Christ yet, but they'll have a conversation with you. Let me give you an illustration of not goodwill. What's going on politically in our country right now? This, this thing, this, this bizarre disaster where if you say something about someone, you have to, we have to condemn them for doing the thing that you said without any proof. And I'll tell you, that's not on our laws, that's not in our constitutional law, but it's in the hearts of half of our country which is a prescription for some sort of uh, disruption, like a civil war type disruption, because our constitutional law is completely opposed or completely uh, restrictive of the attitudes of those who want to condemn on an accusation. We've never condemned on an accusation. But all of a sudden, if somebody says they did it, then we have to believe that they did it. Half Half the country believes this way apparently now. And that is not goodwill. We are in a, a, a disastrous uh, situation in our country. But um, let's go back to Matthew. The open door principle. So if, if God, this is, I'm borrowing from Paul when he says that the Lord will open a door to ministry. You go knock on the door and the person says, eh, I don't want to hear from you. That's probably what you're going to catch in Preston if you go knocking on doors. But on the rare occasion that you get a person of goodwill and you can actually have a conversation, it may not go past the Jehovah's Witness commitments they already have, but at least they'll talk to you. At least there's a, a, a willingness to, to engage. And um, um, I, this is well-traveled territory here, I think, with the gospel. All right, so, um, so I believe that you can see a principle of the open door and, and wisdom in going forward with the gospel and how you communicate to people. Here's the challenge that that principle poses to me. Are you looking for open doors? Are you looking for opportunities? Are you seeing if somebody's a person of goodwill that you can actually have a conversation with? And when it's time to have a conversation and you're like, hey, we're kind of getting along, are you thinking in your heart, this person is made in God's image to be with him forever. That's the design of the person I'm dealing with. And they may or may not have eternal life. And that's really the point of this fluid opportunity where we're getting somewhere in our conversation. I mean, I I see a lot of closed off all the time. I see a lot of people closed off to try to talk to them. But when someone isn't, are you ready to... uh, think about the interaction toward the objective of that person's eternal life. And I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this way, do you love that person? Do you love that person or are you protecting yourself? And we always have to ask that question. I always have to ask myself that question. In verses 16 through 18, 
there will be hardship. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the, sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Sheep, wolves, serpents, doves. He made all of them. <laughs> and he likes to talk about his nature, his, cre- his creatures, to give us uh, illustrations. He talks about lilies of the field. He talks about sparrows. I love the sparrow. After reading the Gospel of Matthew, he's got the sparrow all over the place. I love little sparrows. We, we caught one once. It was a little, uh, little too young to fly quite and was missing its nest, and we had it. Little tweet tweet, remember? Little sparrow we had? Yeah. And the sparrow, the most common thing you'll find out there, just such a source of delight when, they, um, when they're little. And um, Anyway, God is so good with his creatures. Well, he uses them here. What is the, why are we to be like snakes? Snakes are bad. Why are we to be like snakes? Because the snake feels in the ground the vibrations of your feet glumping through the woods. And that's why, for the most part, on your nature hikes, you don't see them, especially if you've got my kids around. You don't see snakes because they hear, they hear you coming and they slither away. And this is the principle of run away. And Jesus is teaching the disciples that. He, he didn't get it from Monty Python. But they need to run away. When Paul is about to be arrested for the gospel, he jumps in a basket and hightails it out of town, out the window. He's down the basket, out the window. It's an old-timey elevator, only goes down. And he runs out of town, and he lives to preach another day. And we don't stand and fight, and they can kill me, but I'm going to say my peace. We run. And that's what Jesus teaches here. You be as shrewd as serpents. doesn't mean you bite. It means you run. Innocent as doves is you're not a snake in terms of your guile. You're not a snake. You are protective and, and, and wise about the, the, the destructive tendencies of those around you. But you are innocent as doves. You don't hurt the people. You're not attacking. We are here on a message of the love of God. And we will. We will either live for it and eventually die. Or we'll die for it after not living very long. One of the two. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're either going to live for the gospel and die after a life of living, or you're going to die for the gospel in a short martyrdom opportunity, but both are going to be testimonies for Christ. So he says, be innocent as doves. Sometimes, in other words, the snake does get caught. Sometimes you can't get away, and um, you, uh, you have to tell the truth. And so he's challenging them with the nature of their mission. They're going to be oppressed and opposed. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you. That's whip you. They'll, they'll strip you down to the waist, and they will skin your back and your ribcage alive. They will skin you and torture you for, for my sake. That's what he says when he says scourge you in their synagogues. And they'll even be, you'll even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, we're getting into Acts territory now. That's what Paul does. Paul has to deal with that. He says he's received the lashes from the Jews in the synagogue uh, multiple times when he recounts his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. Okay, so when we're talking about uh, this suffering, we've left the mission just for the kingdom, and now we're talking about something that has been the church age experience for uh, at least since Peter and Paul which is the, they were the beginning uh, preachers of, in this age. And that's why I say some of these things are across all the, the, this age too, and some of these things are specific to their mission. And so, well, how do we know which one? Look, right there, when he says you're going to be handed over to the kings, not in this, not in, in the Acts, not in the Matthew 10 event that they encountered, but they eventually would, and they, and they were. And so there's a far fulfillment of this, um, that we read in the book of Acts. But when, let's see, and um, you'll be brought before governors and kings, this is verse 18, for my sake is a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. All right. The key I want to focus on on verse 18 is as a testimony to the nations. A testimony. You are going to be brought in front of kings as a testimony for the Gentiles or for the nations. That's the non-Jewish peoples. So their persecution, they're being hauled up on charges like Jesus will be in this gospel. They're being um, put on the spot. Now, what do you say? And what do you say? You have a testimony among the nations. And so 
You put a microphone where I'm going to bear witness in the stand, and what, do I, what am I preaching or what am I saying? Even though the Roman uh, system is that we have to worship our ancestors and the Greek gods that have been Romanized and worship the emperor and burn incense to the emperor, we're not going to do that. I'm going to worship Jesus Christ alone. I'm going to be like Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'm not going to burn incense to the emperor. And for that, Christians, your brothers and sisters were eaten by wild beasts in, these, in the Colosseum. We were tortured for not worshiping false gods in this age. And so that's a testimony. What do we call these people that died for their faith? Martyrs. And did you know that you're speaking Greek? Word means witness. Martyros. It's a witness. It's somebody that bore witness for Christ. And that's exactly what he's talking about in verse 18. So you see persecution by the Jews and the Gentiles as a testimony. That is happening today. That is happening in this age. In verses 19 and 20, don't worry. So you've got to go in front of the king. I don't want to speak in front of a king. Lord, send someone else, says Moses at the burning bush. I can't speak to the king. Don't worry, I'll I'll be with you. I made your mouth, Moses. I've got this. You just do what I told you. Exactly the same type of thing here. When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you're to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you're to say. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. You know, these disciples had to wait in Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Christ, his resurrection ascension, and stay in Jerusalem till you receive the Holy Spirit and power so that you can be my witnesses. You see how he's talking, Matthew's writing for us. The Holy Spirit is going to equip you, disciples, in what you're going to speak. And I take this as apostolic. And no, when you give an answer, you are not giving direct revelation from God. But I believe I can apply this and say the Holy Spirit does bring to our memory so that we're able to respond. And what we need to do is just start praying that Nehemiah prayer when you have a conversation. When you're about to have to hold forth, just say, Lord, give me wisdom in front of this man. Maybe that's the only time you have is to say, help me do it. Let your spirit work because I don't know what to say. And trust him and step out. and, uh, and, And then it's not about you. It's about him. Verses 21 through 23, he's going to call them to perseverance through the suffering. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Can you imagine that? That happened. The commissars did all that with the the children in the Soviet Union. It seemed like a good idea. We'd just pool all our resources, let the government control the economy. But then you got children telling the commissar that the parents aren't good communists with the result that the parents are shot in the children's presence. 20th century was awful. I think 21st century is going to be worse. But that's what's happening. What he describes here is children causing their parents to be put to death. Can you imagine that? The betrayal? I mean, it's one thing the kids won't eat the food you make for them. That's kind of a small betrayal. But this is a little bit more of a betrayal where they're putting you, they're having you put to death as they testify against you in court, apparently. You'll be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who is endured to the end who will be saved. This is a message of perseverance under persecution. Whatever they persecute you, whenever they persecute you in one city, run away, he says. See, I didn't make it up. I would have said, stand your ground and suffer for Jesus. But he says, run to the next town. Truly, I say to you, you'll not finish going through the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. And I believe he is near and far there. He's saying that there is this um, constant mission that's going to happen and it'll be extended to all the nations. Now in verse 24, the great principle that Jesus says in his great laconic wit. Laconic wit means that we have a short terse saying that says volumes. It's like the opposite of what I do. Jesus says the disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It's a beautiful saying. If, they're suffer- if I have to suffer, you're not better than me. You're going to have to suffer. Paul talks about it this way. You're making up what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Are you ready? I don't want to hurt. I don't want to suffer for Jesus' sake. It's Christianity. It's how it works. It's what's been expected of us. And I um, believe it's because it trains us 
it strengthens us, it builds our character and grooms us for our coming governance with Christ. In verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the student that he become like his teacher. My Bible says disciple. But that word just means student. That the disciple, they become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, a, a word for Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? If they're going to call the, the main guy this, what are they going to call you, the little hangers-on? The hangers-on for Satan. They're going to call you the little dregs. And uh, if, they've, if they've run his name through the mud, then get ready. You're going through the sewage. And that's something he prepares these disciples for. So uh, because the slave is not greater than his master, you can expect persecution. Now these themes, I hope you can see, these themes keep recurring. He's talked about persecution already, and now he's talking about it again. And then he's going to talk about provision. He says, but we're supposed to be encouraged in verses 26 through 31. Therefore, do not fear them. See, you're going to suffer. Just put that on the table, but don't be afraid of it. Well, that's kind of a tall order. How do I avoid being afraid when I know I'm going to hurt? I look at what God promised me with the eyes of faith that goes to seed as an expectation that we call hope. I look at what God promised with the eyes of faith and that goes to seed in an expectation called hope. Therefore, do not fear them for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What, I, what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You hear it? If that, that's another way of saying it. Satan is powerful. The demons are powerful. The minions, the humans that are the useful um, uh, minions of the, of the enemy of God who've been deceived by him and are just carrying forth his policies and his, his ideas of revolt against God, this autonomy, this self-life, self self-will. These, the, the human race and all its structures that are militated against the things of God, the nations are raging and so forth, this is really powerful. You and I look at the world and we look at the opposition and we say, what am I gonna do? Richard Rembrandt in Romania under the Soviet Union being beaten daily for his faith. Okay, that, that's power. And I feel that power with every stroke of the pipe that's slammed into my ribs or beating my feet to a bloody pulp so I don't hurt any vital organs, but my feet are completely mangled and destroyed. This, this suffering is powerful, but it's not as powerful as the one who can uh, manage eternity. This person can inflict temporal suffering. God owns time and eternity, and he's got your body and your soul. And so get a big picture. This is a perspective getter. I think of the servant of Elisha who the prophet prayed that his eyes would be opened, and then he saw the chariots of fire. He saw the war that was really going on. He said, oh, okay. There are more with us than against us. So don't, don't, let's, let's, let's don't fear man. Let's fear the Lord is what he says. Jesus is pretty tough here. You're going to suffer, but you need to fear me, not the suffering. You know, that's the solution to the suffering. Fear the Lord. We don't think of it that way. We think Jesus loves me. Yes, I know. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible also tells you, Jesus also tells you, fear me. Fear the Lord, and then don't be afraid of man. And you can do it, but only by God's grace. Are not two sparrows. Now, while we're thinking about who God is, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. We'll wait. It's at the back. <laughs> Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? See, it's the most common thing out there. Two sparrows sold for a cent, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, we've gone from a statement of God's sovereignty to God's 
providential care, to his omnipotent care. And it's not like he's talking about earthquakes and tidal waves and volcanoes. That's all under God's care too. He's talking about little bitty sparrows. The little sparrow, that's sovereignty and omnipotence. That's God's power that no sparrow falls to the ground except from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. And so he, he often compares us to sparrows. He does it in Matthew 6 also. It's something Jesus, I think he said a lot. Birds would fly by as so he was out there teaching. And he'd say, there's a sparrow flying by. Your father's holding him together and he's holding him up and he's providing all the physics that make it work. He didn't say all that, but that's the idea. And you're worth much more than they are. So you need to take the lesson of the sparrow and trust in your father. It's a message of God's power. He takes the smallest possible thing and then shows his mighty power. It's a beautiful thought. In verses 32 and 33, he goes from suffering and provision to reward. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who's in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. I think you can uh, round that out in First uh, Timothy chapter 2. Um, and uh, uh, I don't believe he's saying you don't go to heaven. Um, I think he's talking about uh, the actual context of rulership. So, is that the is that the trumpet? Anyway, so <laughs> it was a horn, but it wasn't the trumpet. In verse thirty-four through thirty-seven, you don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Jesus is bashing all the stuff that people popularly characterize him as he's the great he's the prince of peace he is but here i didn't come to bring peace on the earth i did not come to bring peace but a sword i call this the sword principle you know what the sword principle is it's the principle of uh, jesus thinks he's more important than your relationship with your family i can't hear that because i've got an idol don't touch my idol don't touch my family it's my idol let's touch the idol here he says it I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, Micah 7. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He just quoted from the prophet Micah, his prophet Micah. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If he does not take his cross and follow after me, he's not worthy of me. What is this sword principle? It is that as important as the family is and God made it and he instituted it and it's his thing. Don't make it an idol apart from God. It's a gift from God and thank him for it. But it isn't God. The family isn't God. The family can be a great source of instruction. We're learning about discipleship. That's the number one application of discipleship for us is that we're, we're to train children to be disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the most obvious application. But, but, when the family is opposed to God, when if I choose the Lord Jesus Christ, it severs me from my mother or my father or my sister or my brother, then I have to with Christ and through tears say, so be it. When my commitment to Christ means that I am now severed from my family, not by my choice, but by theirs, through tears I say, so be it. it, it that's what it has to be. If, if my family says, you pick us or Jesus, they lose. And you know what? If you don't do that, there's no way they'll ever win, at least by your testimony. If you say, okay, I'll give up on Christ for my family's sake, then you gave up every chance you have of sharing Christ with them and them receiving eternal life. So sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it hurts. But it only hurts for a little while. Nothing's permanent but what God makes permanent. And nobody has the power that God has. So look at what he says with this sword principle. This is going to hurt. I believe this is the context where Paul is taking up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. They've been kicked out of their families and disowned because they've turned to Christ. They've come to Christ and they're no longer uh, worshiping the way the family worships. They're dead to their, to their parents. They've lost their inheritance. They've lost their business. It wasn't a majority that eventually went with Christ. It was, it turned out to be a minority. And so Paul is traveling throughout the Roman world collecting funds to support these poor oppressed Jews who are now Christians. And so you could see this sword principle at play. 
in verses 38 and 39, you have the summary of what we call the cost of discipleship. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has, not, he who has found his life will lose it. He who, has not, who, who has lost his life for my sake will find another laconic statement from Jesus. If you hang on to you and don't let Jesus have you, then you lose you. If you let you go for Jesus' sake, then he gets you and you have you because you have eternal life with him. That's the picture. So what are we hanging on to that we don't let Jesus have? Is the challenge for discipleship. It's pretty clear. See, I'm with um, one of my favorite Roman Catholic writers uh, was G.K. Chesterton. Gilbert Keith Chesterton. If you haven't read him, you've got to read him. Read the Father Brown Mysteries for Diversion. Read uh, Heretics and um, uh, the other one that's the opposite of Heretics. Anyway, in one of those books, <laughs> Chesterton said, Christianity hasn't been tried and found lacking or found wanting. It's been found difficult and therefore not tried. It's not, it's not that anybody was ever failed by Christ. Is that Somebody takes one look at Matthew 10 and says, what's on TV? I got to get out of here. It's getting a little convicting. I think we ought to read Matthew 10 probably weekly just to remind ourselves what's involved in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In verses 40 through 42, he who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. So that's the chain is if, if you get to Jesus you get the Father. And if you don't get to Jesus, you don't get the Father. He who receives a prophet in a prophet's name, the prophet shall receive, uh, in the name of a prophet shall receive the prophet's reward. So the idea is that you get what's at the end of the chain. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. So what do you get if you get me? You get the Father and what he wants to give you. That's the idea. You get what the Father wants to give you, and it undoes Satan's diabolical lie that God is not nice and loving and want the best for you. He's holding back the goods. Whoever in the name of a disciple gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So compassion and kindness and love for one another is being established here as an ethic for these men working together. Now, I, I, again, the mission he sends them on is different from what we, he sends us on later, but the principles of discipleship are founded here. And I think there are nine core principles of discipleship in Matthew 10. Will you, walk, will you walk, walk through them with me in summary? First, authority. Disciples of Jesus see him as their Lord and master. He is the authority. That's why Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Now, some have said that to believe, to express faith in Christ as your Savior, is the same as saying Jesus you're Lord of my life. And I want to say those are two different statements. Jesus died for my sins and Jesus is my boss are two different concepts. We need to embrace both of them. And the one that discipleship is emphasizing through the passage is authority. The Lord, the shepherd. Now, what does the shepherd do? He provides, he protects, and and sacrifices himself for his sheep. So I, and this is why this matters. In your gospel presentation, you're not supposed to go tell someone to stop the following things and then come see me later once you're done with that and then we'll talk about whether Jesus can be your savior. They can't do anything about their sin. They're sinners. They need Jesus to save them from their sins so they need to trust in Jesus as their savior and there's no other way besides faith, by grace through faith. And so the second principle after authority is provision for discipleship. A worker is worthy of his nourishment and God provides that nourishment is how he begins in provision. But he continues with the provision, doesn't he? Remember about the sparrow? Remember about the provision in uh, verses uh, 26 through 31? The third principle uh, that I think is definitely binding today is reception. Look, at, look to partner with other people. Go to a house of a person of goodwill, in other words. If the Holy Spirit's been working on someone already, then you have an open door and God opens that door. And if that's not the case, then you need to spend some time in prayer and it's probably not your missionary headquarters that that's gonna be that household you start with. So you're looking to partner with men of goodwill and hospitality. And this has to do with the reputation of the ministry too. Who's worthy in town? Bob, the guy over there, let's go see him. And if he's not worthy, if he's a reprobate, then you don't go in there because you represent me. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we don't go to the tax collectors and sinners. It means they're not the base of operations where we're recruiting them as our starting point. Now, maybe they can. Maybe the, the Lord does open a door with Zacchaeus and Matthew, the tax collector, and so forth. But the point we're making is your missionary base is not at the brothel. It's with the man of goodwill who is like Cornelius, the, the righteous centurion who is ripe for the gospel. Fourth, persecution. Persecution is inevitable. The mission will be opposed by God's enemy and his deceived minions. The opposition provides, this opposition provides an opportunity to testify before men. That persecution is not just bad news. It's a platform. It's an opportunity to share Christ. The fifth principle was empowerment. Remember, the Holy Spirit will be the one that speaks. The Spirit is your power. And the, the task at hand is not healing people. It's they, them receiving eternal life through the gospel message, and then they're eternally healed. So the Holy Spirit is the power, and it's his power, it's his message, and so he does equip you to speak when it's time to speak. Sixth, the principle of rejection. Remember, the slave isn't greater than his master. The disciple's not greater than his teacher. They rejected him. They're going to reject you. But always make an issue of Christ and don't personalize it. Don't be like, well, they're rejecting me. They're being mean to me. And think that that demoralizes you. No, they rejected Jesus. They're rejecting him. And you belong to him. And so personalize it in that sense where it's about him. Don't, don't make this about you without being about him. Seventh, the principle of encouragement. You will expect provision through persecution because the Lord is my shepherd and he's taken on himself to provide what we need. Do you believe that? Do you believe the Lord is going to provide your needs? Do you believe that he has you on mission and he's taking logistics on his own responsibility, but you're supposed to move out and get, get to work? That's an abiding principle that um, you see throughout the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Eighth, the sword principle. I had to call it. I had to put it on, here, on the list. I see this in, in ministry with Christians all the time, and I bet so do you, you serious Christians. I bet you see this happen. I imagine the more you spend time with people and see people come to Christ, you're going to see the family become a massive distraction to the things of God. It's going to be a problem. You know why it's so common? Because everybody's got a family. Because everybody in every family is a broken, nasty, dirty sinner. Everyone, even me, even you. Because it's the most common of human experiences. The Old Testament ends with a promise that there's coming, Elijah is going to come and restore sons to fathers and fathers to sons. Why does the Old Testament end on something obscure like father-son relationships? Why is the coming of Christ and the forerunner to Christ going to reunite broken relationships between the generations? Because it's the universal experience we all have. When you become rich in Christ, a lot of times you become poor in family, friends, and otherwise. And in these days, back then, that meant livelihood, inheritance, your business, your family business is tied up in the family inheritance. This was a, a prescription for massive poverty, not here in the land of opportunity. Here, if, you're, if you work hard and you do what you're supposed to do and you impress your boss with your work ethic and your boss has any wisdom at all, you start to bubble up. You start to bubble up, not in federal systems, usually. But in a, in, a, in a business where they got to make money and somebody, I need somebody that can watch the cash register and make sure that people don't come steal from the store. If you're the person that's there early and leaves late and works hard, you bubble up. The person says, hey, you know what? I can't do without you. That's right. But I got to go somewhere where I can make a little bit more money because I can't do it with, on the salary. Now, well, let's talk about that. It's really worth, worth it for me to, that you stay on. Well, I, I, gotta, I, I can't do it this way. Okay, well, what do you need? And that's how it works. You start to bubble up. It's the, it's the Joseph principle. If you're awesome, uh, smart people see it. Now, tragically, not everybody's smart. And that's, sometimes that's the cross you have to bear too. But the sword principle is what we're talking about, and it divides you from your family. You need to be willing for that to happen, not desiring for it to happen, but willing for it to happen. I don't want to ever be divided from my family. I don't want you to be divided from your family. But I didn't make this up. It's not my idea. I'm trying to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you? Are you going to submit to Jesus Christ and say, family has to take a back seat to him? Are you going to do that? Or are you going to say, no, nope, only family, and Jesus can come along if he wants? He's not interested in that. He does not take the back seat. It's not. He's actually, he wants to drive. There's a country song about that. 
Number nine. <laughs> Number nine. Not the focus of the passage, but the end is that there is reward for success. Reward for success and faithfulness. Not only do you have the satisfaction of knowing you got it right, which is a great satisfaction. You ever have that? Lord, I was serving you today and you let me see it and you let me know it and I thank you and I don't let me fall down thinking I'm standing up. But you ever have one of those days where you know you're getting it right? Some of you are like, pastor, aren't all your days like that? Of course, I'm the pastor. <laughs> those of you that couldn't see the video, I made a sarcastic uh, face to show that no, of course, uh, we all struggle constantly. It's a constant battle because we're stuck in this flesh. But, the, but faithfulness gets a reward above just the satisfaction of knowing you got it right, knowing that Jesus tells you you got it right, and that makes an eternal difference. My intention tonight was to say, how did the disciple maker begin in his disciple making? How did he start? What was his instruction to start this off? And what you ended up with was a whole bunch of challenge, a whole bunch of worldview realignment. And uh, maybe you feel like you need a glass of water and an aspirin after all that. But um, if so, read it again. Let it do its work, pray about it, and then read it again tomorrow. And then read it again the next day. And keep reading Matthew chapter 10 until you can say, not my will, God, but your will be done. Our Father, we do want your will in our lives because we know it's the very best and highest for us. We couldn't imagine what blessings you have for us. We can't begin to bless ourselves the way you want to grace us out like you have tonight with a look at the teaching of your son. Father, we want to glorify and exalt him. We want to put on Christ and walk worthy of our calling, which is in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.